Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at chapter 1 and verses 21 to 28. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. Hear with me then the reading of God's Word. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once His fame spread everywhere throughout all of the surrounding region of Galilee. Thus far is the reading of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, today there are so many paths our young ones can take. It's really amazing all the career choices that are out out there for them to choose from. All you have to do to realize that is just go to any university website and you can see all the degree programs offered to them. And because this decision of what will I be when I grow up is such a great yet complicated one, oftentimes they, they even allow you to take these tests. Right? And these tests will, will tell you what job fits best with your personality. And these tests are, are helpful to these young children as they try to determine you know, what it is that I want to do with my life for this is an important question. Especially one in light of of how many years and how expensive it is to to obtain a degree. But also, what makes choosing hard oftentimes is the fact that there isn't just one thing that we like to do and that we see ourselves doing for all of our life. I'm sure if I ask many of us here, we are now doing things or have done things as careers in our life that we never intended upon doing. Uh, I know... That is true for myself, and I'm sure it's true for many of you. Right now, I'm sure there's many of 30 and 40 year old people wandering this world, bouncing from job to job, looking for the one that they want to do. I remember my grandfather saying to me, Noah, I'm 77 years old, and I still haven't figured out what it is I want to do with life. I better hurry up and figure that out. But this is why it's It's so fascinating and why it's such a beautiful thing to see someone at a young age know what it is they want to do and go after it. And so maybe, you know, this young person wants to be a lawyer when they grow up. We'll just use that as as an example. And so maybe they love watching Perry Mason and Matlock. Uh, Maybe they they love reading uh, law books. As they get into high school, they they take internships at uh, law firms. While all of their friends are going out and, and having fun and doing things, 
They're remaining focused on what it is they want to do. Right? There's something really neat when you see that. When you see a passion like that. And when they will not allow anything to push them off the course of the path they see. And I bring this up because I don't think that this is ever more seen than in the life of Christ. The pinnacle of Jesus' ministry is the cross. And yet this is not the only thing that His mission entails. In fact, from Jesus' youth, He knew what His mission was. And that was to do all that the Father's will was for Him. Whatever that encompassed. Right? This is what we read in Luke's Gospel. If you remember the story in Luke chapter 2, verses 41-52 to of uh, Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Passover. And when it was done we read that they all return home. And they're going home in a big pack. And so Mary and Joseph think that Jesus is with them, but lo and behold, they find out He's not. And they return to Jerusalem to find Him. And what do they find Him doing? He's sitting in a temple under the teaching of the rabbis. And He's listening to their teaching and He's asking questions. And people are astounded with His understanding. And Mary sees Him. And and like any parent, what does she say? She says, paraphrasing, you scared us half to death. You know, what, what are you doing? And we read that Jesus was, was 12 years old at this time. And what was his response to his mother? He says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus was keenly aware of what his purpose was and what his mission was from his youth. And so he grew in understanding. He grew in wisdom, we are told as He was being prepared for His mission, and He would not allow anything to come in the way of that. And now, as we read last week, Jesus' ministry has come. Everything that He was working towards and preparing for is now here after John's imprisonment. And we read that now was the time for Christ to proclaim that the the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe. Now was the time for Jesus to gather unto Himself disciples like Andrew and Simon and James and John. That 12-year-old boy who sat in the temple and was taught has now become the teacher. And as we'll see today, Jesus' teaching is unlike anyone else who has come before. And that is because Jesus is unlike anyone who has come before. And He is unlike anyone who will come after. And in fulfilling His commission, Jesus will allow nothing to stand in His way from accomplishing the task that the Father has sent Him to do. And so this morning, what we want to look at are these three elements that distinguished Jesus' ministry from all others. And we'll look at them under three points. And they are this. The first is teaching with authority. Teaching with authority. The second is demonstration of power. Demonstration of power. And the third is healing the wounded. Healing the wounded. So point one, teaching with authority. Look with me then, brothers and sisters, once again, starting at verse 21 then. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Now, I don't know about you, but when I walk into a room full of people I don't know, oftentimes I become nervous. 
Uh, you don't know what people are going to be saying about you, what they are going to think about you. Uh, when it comes time to have to speak with others, you become nervous because it's awkward. You don't know what to say. You don't know anybody. For many of us, public speaking makes you really nervous, right? The, the nerves really skyrocket then. I can remember as a youth in school, I did anything and everything I could to be the, the very last person to go up before the class to present. You know, I, I, tr- I tried to do everything with the hopes of the teacher saying, oh, we ran out of time. Noah, I guess we can't do your presentation. But that never happened. Right? So you can imagine then that doing what Jesus... We, we couldn't imagine doing what Jesus did then in verses 21 and 22 of what we see here. As Jesus enters Capernaum with these four disciples that He's gathered, and He goes right into the synagogue and begins to teach there. Now we have to understand that the synagogue is not like the temple. Okay, In the synagogue, there would be rabbis there who would get up and who would... Uh, take the scroll and would read the scroll and they would sit down and they would expound on the Scriptures to the people. Right? The synagogue was really the place of prayer. It was a place of reading. And it was a place of expounding upon the Scriptures. Okay? This, is, this is why oftentimes people say that the, the Christian church is modeled after the synagogue and not the temple. But that's a discussion for another time. But what we see here, though, in the synagogue is that the the leader of the synagogue isn't the one doing the reading and the teaching. The leader is more of the facilitator. And so what we see here is Jesus walks in before this group of men that He doesn't even know, and He stands up and He takes up the scroll and He reads it, and then He sits down to expound it. Now, as we just said, most people walking into a group full of people we don't know would become very nervous. But now imagine walking in front of a group full of Bible scholars people who have the equivalent of a, uh, of a Ph.D. And you have to take up the Bible and you have to read it before them and expound it. Right? This is exactly what Jesus did. This is the equivalent of what He did. He walks into the synagogue where highly capable men, well-versed in the Bible are, and He does what they could not do. In fact, we read that He taught as one who had authority not as the scribes. Now, for a frame of reference, uh, in the book of Ezra, which is sandwiched between Second Chronicles and Nehemiah, we read that Ezra himself was a scribe. And, in, and we read that God's hand is upon Ezra. And in Ezra chapter 7, verse 6, we are told that Ezra was skilled in the law of Moses and that he taught its statutes and its rules in Israel. You see, so scribes would have been very capable teachers of expounding the law and the prophets. And so we have to ask, why does Mark record, though, that people were astonished that Jesus taught with authority and not like the scribes? Right? They, were, they were all reading from the same scroll. They were men who all had understanding. So what made Jesus' teaching unique? You see, the difference is, is that as the scribes taught, they would be citing sources. As the scribes taught, they would be remembering commentary from other rabbis. As the scribes taught, they would be leaning on the authority and the arguments of others. But Jesus' authority was the authority of God Himself. Jesus did not need to cite anyone else. Jesus did not have to reference the interpretation of the law by any rabbi. For He Himself was the authority behind the law. 
And so Jesus taught what He knew perfectly. Not only did He teach what He Himself was the original author of, but He also preached without error or impurity. Ministers today can and do err. We're fallible people. We're fallible people. We try our best. We study hard. We, we look to, to what others in the ancient church have said to make sure that the things we say are not novel. And yet, errors still occur. I'm sure many of us can, can recall maybe a minister that, that we followed. Let, let's say they, 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 they taught one thing and they were faithful to the Scriptures and they believed this to be true. And maybe five years later, they came back to it to teach it again. And under more scrutiny and more study, their opinion has changed. And now they've, they've taken up an opposite opinion. This is what happens to the finest of preachers and of scholars. Opinions change based on many factors, but Jesus taught what He knew perfectly. And He taught it perfectly. Because He Himself was truth personified. And so there was no speck of error in Jesus' teaching. This is why even today, Scripture does not change with time. Because Jesus' teaching does not change, for it is perfectly true. He cannot improve upon His teaching any more than what He has already taught us. When ministers preach today, we might love 95% of it. But there might be a line here or a word here you don't agree with. And you, you come up to the minister after the service and you say, well, what, what did you mean when you said this? There were no challenges to be brought up before Christ. There was no catching Him in any mistake. Not only was He giving forth to the people the living Word of God, but He Himself was the living Word of God who stood before them. With Jesus, there was no uncertainty within Himself concerning His exposition of Scripture. Jesus didn't think He was right. He knew with absolute certainty that He was right. And do you know why? We read in John chapter 8, verse 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge. But He who sent Me is true. And I declare to you, to the world, what I have heard from Him. Jesus was certain about the message He proclaimed because it was a message He received from His Father. Now even with good and godly and faithful ministers, even when we preach a, a biblically accurate and a theologically sound sermon, what is oftentimes true of us and of all Christians is that even when we feel that we are spot on, we're doing everything right, it, in reality, although we may do, be doing everything right externally, oftentimes our hearts are not always 100% there. Right? And each one of us know that. It is because of our sinfulness. We have to think about perhaps the pastor. As he's proclaiming the sermon, he might be spot on, but maybe his mind and his heart sometimes are wandering because he knows he has to deal with some member of church afterwards. And so his mind wanders. Perhaps as you sit here today, you have trouble at home, trouble at, at work, trouble with a family member. Maybe someone's ill in your family. And so as you sit here today and you listen, your mind might wander. Your heart might not be fully into it and engaged today. 
We are not always 100% there in heart, even though we may look and sound like we are. But our love for God's Word is not always inflamed to the degree that it ought to be. Right? Rabbis in the synagogue could be sitting there proclaiming the Scriptures, but their heart could not be there. It could be very cold. No true love. Not, outwardly, not inwardly affected by the meaning of what it is they were teaching. And teaching like this, if it doesn't affect the one who's teaching, how is it going to affect the ones who are listening? Right? If the one who is proclaiming the Word seems bored and disinterested with it, why would you seek to listen to it? What benefit do you think you would derive from it? We've all probably been taught, whether in school or at work, by someone who, who came up and stood in front of you and had a, had a PowerPoint presentation. And they very dryly and coldly just read word from word from that PowerPoint presentation. And that is the worst thing to sit in front of, isn't it? Who wants to learn from something like that? Right? It's hard to derive anything from that. But this was not the issue with Christ. He perfectly loved the Word of God and His heart was perfectly stoked by flames of love for His Father when He taught. And when you hear preaching like that, you cannot help but be affected by it. Now this may affect people in different ways. For the, for the believer... It might cause you to love God's Word even more. As you would sit there and attentively listen to it, it might cause you to think about what it is that your soul is being fed and how you might live that out during your life. For the unbeliever, it likewise works. But it might do the opposite. Instead, perhaps they might grow and push back against it. Perhaps uh, they, they might not want to hear it any, any longer. They might try to find some excuse to clear their conscience, knowing the message truth and its veracity. But regardless, you cannot dismiss it when you hear the Word of God proclaimed. It was unlike any other. This is what happened when Christ proclaimed the Word. People there listened and were astonished by it. Perhaps some received it and believed. Perhaps others shunned the Word of God. But there was no shaking off the power of the Word. And yet, brothers and sisters, as we sit here today, as we come every Lord's Day, we have to ask ourselves, do, as we consider the, the mighty works of God, are we astonished and are we amazed by the Word of God? Because we should be. We should be amazed as we consider His mighty works, as we consider His attributes, as we consider the incarnation, as we consider the humility of Christ, as we can consider His work of redemption. Our response ought to be the response of those who are in this synagogue. Astonishment and amazement when we hear the Word of God. If you walk out of here without a sense of awe upon hearing the Word of God, you ought to consider and ask yourself why. Because this is what the Word of God ought to do as it strikes at your soul. Now what we see from Jesus is that He did not just have a powerful Word, never before witnessed teaching, but we also see with Him a great demonstration of power through the working of miracles. And this brings us to point number two, which is the demonstration of power. Look with me please at verse 23. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, 
What have you to do with us, Jesus of, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. It pains me to say, brothers and sisters, but I believe that there are a lot of people within Christianity who feel the exact same way as this unclean spirit does. As he was confronted with Christ, what did he respond? What have you to do with me? Or we could translate it, why are you bothering me? Why are you bothering me? I think oftentimes people come to church and gather for a whole multitude of reasons, and the least of which is to be confronted with Christ. People come, but they want to be left alone how they are. They like how they are. They don't want to be told about their sin or their need to die to self. They say, leave me alone. Just tell me about all the benefits I get for being a believer. Give me some really uplifting and positive message. But what they want to hear is not the truth. They simply want their ears to be tickled. And for people like that, they ought to consider and ask themselves, why even attend? I mean, so so many people come just because they've been raised in the church and so it's just a a routine for them as they grow older. Some people come because they do it to appease their spouse. Other people do it because they love the music there. Some do it because it makes them feel better about themselves to come to church. But if the sermon's too long, what's the response? Irritation. Right? Checking our watches, looking up at the clock, wishing that the living Word of God that is presenting Christ before us and that is nourishing our souls would just end. And we have to ask ourselves, is there anyone here who, who thinks in that way? Because that is no attitude that any Christian ought to have as they come to worship God on Sunday. As we awaken on Sunday morning, we ought to be excited to come to church and to hear the Word of God and to be powerfully impacted by it. We ought to desire to be sanctified through His Word no matter the topic. Whether it's one that we enjoy or one that's difficult to hear. But also what this ought to teach us is that there are many devils in the midst of the church. Do not think because you come and walk through the church doors that you are not going to be influenced by unclean spirits or morally corrupt spirits because you will. Satan loves to enter into Christian gatherings and to stir up strife and to cause trouble between brothers. Right? And to divide and to to cause schism. But in this demonstration of Jesus' power... By removing this Spirit, what Jesus shows us is that His Word is more powerful than anything, either visible or invisible. As Jesus' Word subdues and conquers not only Satan, and not only sin, but also the sinner. And yet what we read in these verses here today also ought to be a rebuke to the church. This demon recognized the identity of Christ and knew Him better than many Christians do. What did He say? Jesus of Nazareth, 
the Holy One of God. Not even the demon could deny the deity of Christ. And this demon also knew what Jesus came to do. Which is why He said, what have you to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? This demon knew that there exists a place called hell. That they will go and there will be eternal punishment. He knows that in the coming of Christ, there will be a final judgment. Beliefs that a lot of evangelicalism is missing today. Yet we also see the utter uselessness of mere intellectual knowledge. All the knowledge in the world would not make this demon believe and trust in Christ as his Lord and as his Savior. This demon did not want to be saved. He just didn't want damnation either. He just wanted to be left alone in this man. He knows his end. He knows what his end will be. But what does he do? He continues to rebel. And yet, everyone and all things are under the sovereignty of God. This evil, unclean spirit could only rebel as long as the Lord uh, permitted him to rebel against him. And as soon as Jesus said, be quiet and come up out of him, it was done. Jesus' power extends over all things. And it was done, brothers and sisters, we see, by a simple word. A simple word. Today, people claim to be able to do these supernatural works and these miracles. They dance around, they recite things, they'll push you by your head and your chest. But they do all these things to try to show in their actions the power of their words. Yet, it's just pageantry. They push someone down to the ground and you see them convulsing and you, you say to yourself, oh man, a miracle must be going on. They must be getting healed. That minister must have some great power. But as we see, Jesus didn't need to do any of that. He spoke a word and it was done. And all who were there were amazed and seen it. And no one could deny that a miracle had been done. But seeing that this was the end for this demon, even though he had knowledge of Christ, let this be a reminder to each and every one of us here to be spiritually alert. To not just know Christ, but to love Christ in the very depths of our being. To not just know Jesus as the Holy One of God, but to cleave to that knowledge of that truth and to delight in its reality. Martin Luther said something that's obvious and yet what's fascinating. He said this, the life of the Christian consists in possession of pronouns. It is one thing to say that Christ is a Savior. It is another to say that Christ is my Savior. Let each and every one of us here be able to say that Christ is my Savior. For this is the reason that Christ came. To save and to heal. To be a God unto us and to make us a people for God's possession. And this leads us then to our third and final point this morning, which is healing the wounded. And so let us start by looking at verse 27, please, together, as we read this. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits and they obey Him. 
And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. You see, this man was controlled by this demon. We see this as the demon took over this man's mouth and he took over this man's tongue because he spoke his own words through this man. But what Jesus shows us in casting this demon out is that Jesus' power can break the power of Satan. We've seen this begin in the wilderness when the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was confronted by Satan and he was tempted by Satan. And he rebuked him and Satan fled. We've seen there the superiority of the power of God over all things. With the coming of Christ, Satan's power has been bound. Satan is now restrained. He cannot deceive one saint into falling away. God's saving power cannot be hindered by anyone or anything. And with this great demonstration of power, what Jesus confirms to each and every one of us and what it confirmed to all who witnessed Him then was what His mission was. His mission was to confront Satan and to strip him of his power and to bring healing to His own people. To free us from slavery to the will of Satan as this man was. And that's exactly what Christ did. And what encouragement And what relief that ought to give to us as we consider that today, brothers and sisters. As we consider our own salvation that we experience. As well as the salvation of all those whom we hope and pray for. Jesus' first miracle recorded by Mark is removing an unclean spirit from the man. Mark doesn't record for us what would seem to be an easy miracle to do, but a hard one. He isn't just cleansing a sinner, but He's cleansing a sinner who's under the control of a demon. I'm sure many people throughout this man's life, as he was had this demon inside of him, tried to cure him. They tried to do everything, I'm sure, in order to free him from this unclean spirit. But what we see, brothers and sisters, is that even when Satan causes a man to say, Jesus, leave me alone, God has the power to remove the Spirit from that man. Mark records this to show us the magnitude and the excellent greatness of our Lord's power. He records this to comfort us as those who once dwelt in darkness and who despised the kingdom of light. He records this to show us that Christ can make the most dreadful of sinner clean. And if you are a believer here today, you know this. You have experienced this. Some of us here were probably worse sinners than others. But nonetheless, we were all sinners. And nonetheless, we all know what the grace of God is capable of. And as we sit here today, we probably have mothers and fathers sons and daughters, spouses, brothers and sisters, families and friends who are right now as we speak living every day in rebellion and on a a collision course with the wrath of God. But let us take comfort as we read this here today that as long as they have breath, God can heal them. God loves to show His grace and His mercy And so let us petition His throne of grace and offer up supplications constantly for 
our brothers and our sisters, for our mothers and our fathers, that God would heal them. As we see, God has the ability and the power to heal the most wretched of men and women. He can make the crooked straight and He can set the captive free. And yet, let us learn from this demonstration of God cleansing this man from this unclean spirit that no individual has the power to heal himself. No individual has the power to save himself. We do not have the power to save anyone else. That belongs to Christ alone. And so they were amazed, we see this, as Christ taught and as He demonstrated His power and as He healed this man, they see nothing like it because there is nothing like it. Christ alone is Savior. Christ has the power over both humans and demons as Christ has conquered Satan and sin and death. And so Christ alone is the dispenser of new life in man. But this is the good news we read, brothers and sisters, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who fear My name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And this is the reason that He has come. To heal. Through the voluntary submission to the perfect will of the Father. This is why Jesus could say when confronted by the Jews for healing a man on the Sabbath, My Father is working until now and I am working as well. Jesus allowed not man, nor Satan, nor demon to push Him off the course or to stop Him from accomplishing the mission that the Father had sent Him to do. And so, brothers and sisters, let us take heed of Christ's example. And by God's grace and by His mercy, let us never be pushed off the course of life that our Father has placed us upon. Let us continue to love God, to live obediently by faith, and to glorify Him in all of our lives. Please, if you will, bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for Your Word. We are grateful for the good news that we have in Christ Jesus. That He has come to seek and save the lost. He has come with healing in His wings. Father, we are so thankful as we recognize this and as we think about this. We are so thankful, Lord, for Christ and for His powerful ministry. A ministry that was unique and unlike any other. We thank You, Lord, for the salvation that He has brought. We pray, Lord, that You would increase within us our knowledge of Christ and our love of Christ, that You would increase with us the benefits we have through union with Christ this day. And we pray, Lord, that You would, by Your Spirit, be bringing what we have learned today to remembrance and that we might be working that out in all of our life this coming week. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.